When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Is that if you hold people responsible for living their values perfectly, then the people who pay the highest price are the people whose values are the most restrictive. Brett, so good to have you here. Thank you for coming on the cast. Gentlemen, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. Yes, so I wanted to begin by asking you, I've, I've been a person and a lot of my friends have been of the mindset uh, that you shouldn't watch the news, that you should, that it gets in the way of productive, useful work and also of feeling empowered in the world, that there are just things that are occurring that are too big and I'm much better off to focus on my family, community and some, any sort of private venture that I might have. Your podcast has recently moved me in the direction of becoming more aware of large social trends that I may or may not need to become involved in. And I'm curious, one, is that the case that we need people like myself who have been uh, more apolitical to get involved with what is happening today in the world? And if that is the case, how do we know when those times occur and when it is better to step back and go, you know what, I'm going to focus on my small life, build a business and donate to the charities that I, that I can uh, help with? Man, what a beautiful question. Um, first of all, I would I would vehemently disagree. You should definitely watch the news. The problem is it isn't on. So um, that stuff that looks like the news is dangerous as all hell, and you should probably steer clear of it. But mm -hmm. it would be great if we could get the news back because it uh, served a vital role. Um, as for whether or not people like yourself who have um, uh, deliberately tuned out of these toxic channels need to step back in in other places, A, I can tell you from watching a bit of your podcast that uh, you're doing a marvelous job of threading that needle and be that yes i think a lot of us are being brought back into the system in places we never expected to be because it's it's an all hands on deck moment and mm -hmm. so finding a way to be um, part of the solution is something that i think many people are feeling called to and uh I, you clearly are, and I wouldn't question it too much. Got it. So I live in a crowded area in Santa Monica, and if I walk down the street on any given day, there's going to be someone shouting about the end of the world, insisting that I repent for whatever sort of religious reason they have. If I go onto the internet, I can find fringe ideas of all kind, and similar to this idea, it has been, it seems to me, the right mode of, of operating the world to tune these sorts of things out. And so when I hear ideas like hashtag shutdown STEM, you know, the idea that we're going to cancel math or engineering, that hits me with the same amount of ridiculousness that the person with the sign on the promenade does. And so 
how can I and people like me sort of distinguish between fringe ideas which necessarily need to be ignored when you're in such a loud world and these fringe ideas which are very important to engage with because they might alter the shape of so many of our lives? Yeah, that's another excellent question. I would say you should draw a distinction between the content of what is being said, which mm-hmm. is just as fringy and unlikely as you think, mm-hmm. and the power that comes along with it, which is the thing that should be frightening all of us. Mm-hmm. So I'm now going to be one of those guys saying the end is nigh. <laughs> but um, I, I am not at all concerned that um, we are going to start believing that two plus two equals five because we're not. Um, I am concerned that the movement that is carving out the right to claim that two plus two equals five is gaining power at a rate that is almost impossible to imagine. Mm -hmm. And it is the power of that movement, not their claims, that has me deeply concerned. Got it. And so how did you know that? I mean, you were so prescient and so early at Evergreen in seeing the sorts of things that were happening in this in this groundswell. And it's it's been an idea that's been beaten to death. But I, I saw you the first time on the Joe Rogan experience, and I think my reaction to you was the same as everyone's else, which I thought you were an interesting and eloquent speaker, ultimately concerned with the problems of a small liberal college, which would never break out into the world because it was so patently uh, anathema to what I experience in my day-to-day life. And I think this is another difficulty that I'm having, which is that when I speak to people on planet Earth in 3D, I do not encounter the types of radical ideas that are so commonplace on the internet. And I I am very much struggling to find someone that I could speak to as a representative of some of these more radical ideas to A, convince me that these people do actually exist outside of internet trolls. Uh, and B, to, to humanize them for me so I can understand what it is that they're trying to accomplish. And then when I can't find them, I often just go, you know what? I overreacted. There was, you know, this, this was just this one moment in time. The sun is shining. Everything is beautiful. And so I'm curious, uh, and, you know, for my own personal um, decisions that I make in my own life, how can I accurately decide to stay involved with these larger movements that nonetheless do not seem to touch my life in in any sort of day-to-day way? Well, there's a a complex answer that I think we have to to invoke here. One is your instinct that these people who espouse these incredible beliefs are almost non-existent is right. Mm -hmm. They are almost non-existent. But again, that doesn't mean that they are not driving a system in which many people are signing on, you know, um, no doubt you have just with yourself held some kind of discussion about how you feel about the claim that black lives matter. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to guess that like me, you feel like it shouldn't need to be said, but it does need to be said. And to the extent that what it really means is that black lives are undervalued in the U S that's true. It's a problem that demands a solution and the solution is overdue. And so we can embrace the idea. But then if you dig into what Black Lives Matter stands for, what is inside the box with that label on it, you discover a whole host of other things that you probably at the very least would want to slow down and unpack. Like Mm -hmm. there's some problem with the idea of the nuclear family or shut down STEM or all cops are bastards or whatever it might be. Or that, you know, Marxism is somehow an up-to-date solution to the problems confronting us that Mm -hmm. 
derived from capitalism. So, you know, I think the problem is most people don't approach it the way I know from watching a bit of your podcast that you do. You're going to sort these things carefully and you're going to make sure that you don't sign up for things just on the basis of a slogan that appeals to you. But most people are very busy. They're tuned into channels that are full of lots of noise. And so their sense is if somebody says, Black Lives Matter, do you agree? The answer is, well, sure. Mm-hmm. And so, those are the people that I'm, that I'm speaking to on a day-to-day basis. So I guess what, what we're coming up against is that you're showing that there is a power thing that is going on here. It's not the, the frequency with which an idea is held. It is the power that these people have. What was the crossing of the Rubicon for you, where, these, where you saw that this power was now instantiated in such a way that it could no longer be denied? And, and where should we be looking to understand that, yes, this is a fringe idea, but it is held in such an authoritative way that it can no longer be ignored? Well, I mean, there are a number of things. I think it's probably best to explain how I ended up there early. Sure because that will suggest something about what's wrong with, with other models. So first of all, I, am, I, I don't really believe that dyslexia is a disability in the standard sense. I don't think it's a defect. I think it has a lot to do with um, the written word, which is a very new invention and a mismatch between some of us and you know the printed page and particular font sizes and things like that. But whatever it may be, I'm dyslexic, and it got in the way of my schooling very early on. Like from the second grade, I was a total failure in school. And that had many bad um, outgrowths in my life, but it also had a few very good ones. Um, and one of them is that it made me skeptical of school itself, And so to the extent that I found my footing elsewhere and learned to think about things, I didn't learn to think about it in the same way as every other kid in my classroom. I learned to think about it, you know, from my grandfather, for example, who was a chemist. Um, And in any case, I think what happened and what is happening was a lot more obvious to anybody who had put together their worldview Uh, not in any sort of standard way, had put Mm -hmm. it together from some sort of just simply independent set of sources. And what I would claim is that actually if you did that, if you were just simply doing your own math rather than accepting what was being delivered, then it was pretty clear that something alarming was uh, on the march. And then as that thing went from fringe to powerful, it became obvious because it began toppling uh, power structures that had seemed like they would last forever. And so what were so, the, some of those initial power structures? Was it was it the administration at Evergreen? or? Well, I mean, Evergreen was, for a time, the spectacular version of this breakdown, which, of course, led people oftentimes to, uh, to grant it that it was, in fact, wrong, mm-hmm. um, but to also rob it of any power to inform us about what was coming on the basis that it was a very... Um, fringe place and therefore maybe the what had gone on there that had been so wrong was unique in fact what it was was three years ahead of the rest of civilization yeah yeah um so um yes you could see it happen at evergreen even in that context though the evergreen was such an unusual place to teach that my wife and i encountered it only occasionally because we had a very vibrant group of students that weren't falling for it and we spent most of our time in, 
you know, in a community with them. Mm -hmm. We only encountered it when we dealt with our faculty colleagues and the occasional administrator and other places that would be much less likely to occur. But you start to see, for example, claims in newspapers that don't add up and are being trafficked as something other than what they really are. You see institutions issuing statements that uh, basically undermine a future ability to navigate uh, claims of truth, for example. And um, all you have to do really is extrapolate, mm -hmm. right? You just take what changes are being instituted and you say, well, if I play this through in a context where something real is under discussion or is being contested, how do these new rules play out? And you begin to detect at the very least whether whatever this force is that's changing things knows what it's doing or not. It is building a structure that will allow it to remake the institutions from the inside out. Got it. Um, you can also just simply, you know, yes, Evergreen was extreme. On the other hand, the fact that um, every college in the country was being affected simultaneously tells mm -hmm. you something right away. If this were a confusion, you would expect there to be at least some diversity of opinion about it. But this universality of change says this really has nothing to do with content and has a lot to do with power. Sure. And I guess perhaps the mistake that I made was in assuming that you're saying extrapolate. And what I was viewing it were stages of life. And so I saw that in my own college years, I was as uh, liberal, open-hearted, ready to protest for Darfur without understanding Darfur. I believed that if there was ever a conflict between a structure that was powerful and a, and a structure that was not, that it was inherent that that powerful structure was corrupt and abusing that power. And what I saw is that as I entered into the world and, and entered into some of the hierarchies of the working world, that, that power wasn't just built on corruption and it wasn't just built on abuse. That occurred, of course. Hey, kitty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that there was also competency in, involved in a lot of these things and people had earned these positions. So the error that I seem to have made in my predictions was, was that assuming that life uh, and ideologies unrolled in phases so that when I saw these college kids, they were, of course, open hearted and, and had big utopian dreams for the world because that's how I was. Why did this not evolve out of that stage like so many people like myself sort of did when they when they entered, quote unquote, the real world? Well, let me uh, try my own formulation, because sure. although I didn't travel exactly that path, mm -hmm. uh, I traveled a parallel one. Mm -hmm. So I came from a very progressive family and I've been a, a liberal and I would actually argue a radical for my whole life. I still feel like I am. Um, but I come from a tradition that used to be very vibrant, which was an intellectual left tradition. And that intellectual left tradition navigated these issues carefully. And it left me sensing that I do want change because I believe we could be doing much better. But I also fear change because I know that if you institute change, you're very likely to discover unintended consequences, and many of them can be frightening and outweigh any benefits you would actually um, produce. But, you know, as an adult, I realized that the honorable thing, it's one thing to be a progressive because you believe change must happen. It's another thing to assume that that will always be the case. There comes a point at which you have achieved something so good that 
to change it in order to make it better is actually an error, mm -hmm. right? You're not going to drive it to perfection. Utopia, as I've argued elsewhere, is the worst idea humans ever had. Mm. Um, but what I find in left-leaning circles is a failure to understand that they are trying to build a world that would be so good that it would be a mistake to try to alter it. In other words, that you should be aiming ultimately for a world so good you become a conservative within it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what to do with the observation that many of the folks on the left at the moment are committed to change under any circumstance and at all costs. And frankly, if you if you ask them about it, they will tell you as much, which mm -hmm. says that this is not a tradition proceeding from any kind of analysis. This is a ideological commitment to change, and that is by definition lethal. Mm -hmm. So what I, the, what I see when I look at it from that perspective is that emotions seem to be the bedrock that underlies politics, such that when I encounter a person, for instance, who is tends towards conspiracy theories, with a high degree of accuracy, I can predict that they had a difficult relationship with figures of authority in their childhood. Uh, and so when I see exactly what you're talking about, which is change for change's sake, I wonder if when I engage with these types of people and discuss, I guess I often find that discussions about policy get nowhere. I mean, they, they cite their studies, I cite mine, and we get nowhere. It often seems that what needs to be recognized is there's sort of an emotional component to it, which is there's this desire to be recognized, affirmed, and acknowledged. And I'm curious, because you were working with a lot of students at Evergreen that I'm sure were working through this and didn't necessarily have a lot of the real world experience to have deep policy understanding. Is there a particular sort of emotional makeup of the type of person that is uh, radically activist, wants change for change's sake, without necessarily understanding the structure that they're trying to change that that would be helpful to someone like me in terms of engaging with them to see what it is from an emotional perspective that they're looking for? Well, I do think that there are certain parameters, you know, I think they're developmentally uh, produced, but that there are certain configurations of a human being that will leave them driven by emotion, reluctant to do the analysis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly, none of us are in a great position to do the analysis because the, the data we're working mm -hmm. from is pretty low quality in most cases. But um, there's also some basic software that we all acquire and we lose contact with the right tools. So at the risk of overcomplicating things, consciousness is our toolkit for things that are not easy to understand based on what we already know. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, for most people, the trigger to processing something consciously is set uh, way too high. In other words, you rarely are able to raise a question with somebody in such a way that they will actively say, well, let me think about why I believe what I believe and whether there might be an error in it. So what you're running into is a kind of subconscious reflexive reaction that's based on an intuition, right? And those intuitions, intuition can be excellent if it's really well tutored, or it can be really low quality if the thing that built the intuition was not um, representative. But the danger for all of us is that our friends and neighbors are very prone in general to stay out of conscious analysis and default to other things that they find more comforting. And so what I hear in what you're saying 
I hear a conscious mind and I, I hear you even engaging other people's lack of consciousness in a conscious way. Why, why do they feel that way? Why do I have such a hard time reaching such people? And um, I guess the final thing I would say about it is that uh, I did learn in the classroom over the course of 15 years um, that the key to reaching people has to do with triggering them to go mm -hmm. into this other mindset. Once sure. somebody is engaging you consciously, there's all kinds of progress you can make. Until they do, there's very little. Mm -hmm. So the, the thing that one has to do is come at them in a way that is surprising enough that they don't have a ready-made answer. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that you sound like the opposition, you will get filed that way. And that's, and that's what I've seen. And I, I appreciate that, you, uh, that I'm able to fake being one of those conscious minds. But the truth is I can turn it on for about an hour when, when, I'm, when I'm in front of the camera. But when I engage in, I, I see it in myself. When I, especially with family, and there's times where I just want to win an argument. And I see that same survival, ideological process occur in myself. I would say for 80% of the discussions that I'm in, if I'm being completely honest. And... What it seems to me as I've done my own internal you know, therapy and work and I'm, I'm into psychedelics for the purposes of sort of unraveling some of that trauma is that as I, as I unravel some of the trauma, I am more capable of being more conscious more often. And the feeling that is arising in me at some level is of not being safe. And so when I'm in an environment where I lock down and I all of a sudden need to win the argument, it's because some part of me doesn't feel safe. Either I don't feel respected, I feel uh, overlooked, and I, or I need to assert some kind of power in order to regain control. And so what I've seen is that I actually have an assistant who um, is an Evergreen alum. And so she had sent out a lot of messages to Evergreen people about you know what we should ask you. And some of the things came back were <laughs> highly inappropriate and, uh, and unkind, but, and, and, I, she didn't have a strong opinion, but I could see that early in the conversation with her that there was a sense that we were opposite. But it was only when I sort of said, okay, take a deep breath. She needs time to express. And also she raises good points. And if you can recognize that, she's going to feel more safe. And then, by, of course, by the end of it, we get, you know what? If me and Brett sat down, we'd probably agree on 99% of the things. So it seems to me that when, these, uh, when people engage in these political discussions at policy level – there's a more foundational piece of perhaps safety and respect that is being completely overlooked. And I fear that the tools which we now use to engage in political discourse, the technology that we have, have made it so easy to blow, to blow past safety and respect. And so I don't know how to get it back on track other than these long-form conversations, quite frankly. It's the only thing, and it's why we do this podcast. It's not incredibly lucrative or anything like that for us. <laughs> Well, I agree, and I also find the podcast thing surprising and very hopeful. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there's this piece of video, and believe me, I did not see the event coming, but this piece of video that made me, uh, brought me to public attention, where I'm confronted in the hallway by 50 students I'd never met, claiming that I was a racist, and I attempt to engage them because that's what I did. You know, mm -hmm. confused college students were... Uh, basically a, a hazard of my profession, and I was more than ready to talk with them. They were not more than ready to talk with me, interestingly. But, um, but in that piece of tape, I heard myself say something, and I couldn't, in real time, I couldn't believe that this is what I was choosing to say at that moment, but nonetheless, it's what came out of my mouth. And I said that I uh, was interested in dialectic, not debate, um, and that the difference was in a dialectic, the purpose was to use disagreement to figure out what's true rather than to win. Mm -hmm. um, 
this is exactly what you're looking for, mm-hmm. right? To the extent that you are in a conversation where the purpose is winning, there's very little point. You know, you will maybe discover some loophole in what your interlocutor is saying or something like that, but you won't discover anything new. Whereas it sounds like in your conversation with your assistant, actually you went from a perception that you might be in very different places to an agreement that probably most of what was being debated wasn't actually at issue. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we need. We need it everywhere. You know, my feeling is um, life is too short. I never want to be in another debate, like not even Mm -hmm. a single one, right? It's all dialectic from here on out if I can arrange it, Mm -hmm. because if I'm wrong, I want to know how I'm wrong as quickly as I can possibly figure that out. I don't want to win. I want to lose and I want to get past it and then start being right again. So so one of the things that I've been uh, sort of contending with is this idea that, yes, if you want a dialectic, I always as a philosophy major assumed, okay, the way to dialectic is via logic. And what I am seeing as I encounter people is that a critical component is emotional quotient, is understanding people, is making them feel safe. And there are times at which, and I'll give you an example – one of the questions that my assistant really wanted me to ask you, if there was anything that you regretted about the Evergreen, uh, how you conducted yourself. And I'm not saying that necessarily you ought to or you should, but it seems like those kinds of concessions, which are these emotional mea culpas of, you know, you know what, you're right, I was a bit rude to you, open up the door for dialectic, and even if, even if there's nothing that logically you did wrong. So I'm not saying that you ought to have... Uh, anything that you regret in that situation. I am curious if you do, but it's, that is something that I struggle with, which is, man, when to, when to push forward logically and when to go, you know what? I've been a little bit too harsh with you. <laughs> I've, been, I've been a little bit unkind or a little bit rough. And I see you're making a really good point. You have good intentions. So I guess two questions there. One, is there anything that you wish you would handle differently in Evergreen? And, and then how do you handle the emotional component of the dialectic so that people do feel like they can achieve truth or aim at truth at least? Yeah. Uh, The first one of those is really difficult because Mm -hmm. I absolutely respect the intent of the question. Mm -hmm. And I wish I had a great answer for it. It'd be lovely to have something where I feel like, yeah, I really screwed that up. (laughs) And by uh, offering that, uh, I can potentially go some of the distance to reaching people who haven't yet seen where I was coming from. The problem is that almost every interaction during the period in question was captured on videotape Mm -hmm. and they've been poured over endlessly. And so at one level, is there anything I would like to do differently? Yeah, I would do almost everything somewhat differently because I now have the benefit of hindsight. But is there something that I feel like in the moment I really screwed up? Nope. I think there was There came a point when it became clear there was no way to save the college Mm -hmm. from itself. And we now know that to be the case because it has been three and a half years since this happened. They never even fired the president who set this all in motion. That would have been the most obvious way to signal to the world that they understood that they had made errors, which they clearly did. Um, But they have held to these bizarre and incorrect beliefs And they've just doubled down repeatedly. So I don't think there was anything I could have done Mm -hmm. to alter what they would have done with the college. And so what that meant was the whole thing was unfolding in a college that was in the midst of a collapse. And, you know, 
there are several instances where I was confronted by students, again, students I didn't know, who did engage me. And I actually think it went pretty well. Yeah. I believe I saw recognition in people's eyes that they were actually realizing that the story they'd been fed about me was incorrect. But then they would go back to some group that I couldn't see and they would lose whatever they had come to understand, right? There was this force that punished them for even considering the possibility that they didn't have it all right. In that situation, there isn't a whole heck of a lot you can do. Mm -hmm. And so what I ultimately did was I broke out of the framework. If the framework was inside of Evergreen, then they were going to snuff me out and they were going to stigmatize me and say that they had gotten rid of a, a bad professor who harbored racist beliefs or something like that. By breaking out of that framework, the story was different and the story isn't perfect as the world understands it, but it's pretty accurate. It's interesting right. because her her big her one of the big grief, grievances that the people uh, that she had asked said was that was the move to talk to Fox News was was what upset them the most because in in that worldview Fox News is the speaker box of <laughs> of all that is bad and maybe perhaps I'm exaggerating but of course I said I imagine that Brett had had taken measures in the system that he was operating in in order to discuss this as a quote unquote family or community and that that was met with some resistance. I well, what's more, I did absolutely everything I could to get this properly discussed mm -hmm. internally, as you suggest. Then when the protest came to my classroom and then quickly devolved into riots, I didn't go to Fox News. Fox News came to me. Mm -hmm. You know who didn't come to me? CNN. The New York Times didn't come to me. <laughs> CBS didn't come to me. MSNBC didn't come to me. Mm -hmm. And so if I had chosen Fox News as the place to sure. take this story out of the evergreen context, that would be one thing. But I didn't choose it. What happened was the left-leaning press did not want to report the story because it went against their narrative. And the right-leaning press did want to report the story because it fit their narrative. That's not on me. Yeah. Right? I had to break this out of the context of Evergreen in order to get a fair hearing. And, um, you know, I've also been taken to task over the Tucker Carlson appearance because he misrepresented what had taken place. So the protesters chose to focus on Day of Absence, which was a, uh, a protest that occurred annually at Evergreen and then was reversed in 2017. White people were asked not to come to campus. And in introducing me, Tucker Carlson said white people were forced not to come to campus, which was not true. Mm -hmm. I didn't say it. I did fail to correct him. I'm not 100% certain whether or not my sitting in the studio and hearing the intro, I actually was able to hear the part that needed correction. But let's say that I was. I failed to correct it. I then went back to Fox News a second time because I had heard so many people say that I had an obligation to correct that and that I had failed to do so. So I did another uh, interview with Carlson and I did correct it and nobody has ever mentioned it. I've never <laughs> yeah. once seen anybody say at least Brett went back and fixed the error. And so, yeah, I don't want to stay on this. I want to start moving towards 2020, but it seems that one of the most difficult things that we're encountering is is the sense that the person that you are in an argument or a debate with is a monster and and the, that the confirmation bias kicks in so strong such that oh he was on fox news that's enough to nail him to the cross but you know okay he did his best to correct the error that's not enough to absolve him and uh i engage in it i guess this before we get to unity 2020 uh you've talked about 
rent seekers. You've talked about uh, those who hoard opportunity. And while I definitely want to hear more about the rent seeking, one of my concerns when any class or group of people is is um, sort of uh, made to be the problem, I, I get nervous. Because what I've often seen is that it is, you know, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And if you can find rent seeking behavior in that 1%, you can find it in yourself. You'll find nepotism in the lowest of low classes as well. And it appears to me that the only way to uh, holistically deal with these problems while politics and policy is a short-term stop measure is to figure out how to root out those problems in yourself even at the lowest level and then to lead by example to teach other people how to do that so a couple questions here one when you say rent seeking behavior what um what exactly are you talking about and then two where might we find it in our own lives where could we undergo the difficult steps of, of rooting it out in our own lives and then I, for, for me, I could have some moral authority to, to look at the private equity guys and say, hey, <laughs> don't do that anymore. I've taken the hard steps to get it out of my life. You know, I'm going to show you or at least be an example of how you can do that. Oh, this is great, but it might take a little unpacking. Okay. So first of all, rent-seeking behavior is essentially, um, it is the derivation of revenue without productivity. In other words, if you, you know, the iconic example, <laughs> economists are not going to like this as the iconic example, but the iconic example might be uh, warlords who have control over a road and extract a toll for passing by. Mm -hmm. They're not, they didn't build the road. Um, what they're doing is just simply extracting revenue without adding anything. The problem, so, and first of all, I, I resonate with what you're saying about demonizing people. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I've chosen to talk about rent seeking as the problem is that it is not a group of people, right? Now, I do say rent seekers, but mm -hmm. it's a self-defined issue. If I've categorized somebody as rent seeking um, and it turns out that they're actually being productive in some way that I can't see, that's fine. I'm defining the, the problem the as rent seeking behavior and the problem is therefore people who engage in rent seeking, many of whom don't know they're doing it though. And another thing I've said is that Many people are wealthy as a result of productive behavior, but not all of their fortune is the result of that productive behavior. In other mm -hmm. words, once you have wealth, that wealth often finds ways to seek rent, and therefore people tend to be hybrids, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the place I disagree with you is in the question of finding it in yourself to avoid this behavior. That may or may not be the right instinct, depending upon what sort of rent-seeking behavior we're talking about. So I would say it exists in anybody who has an investment portfolio. Your money is rent-seeking while you're sleeping. Mm -hmm. can it I, can't help it. Can I ask a clarifying question here? Because sure. what I've set up with you know, the power of the internet is a digital business that essentially makes money if I sleep. Uh, we sell access to a course to help people be more confident and charismatic. I've made that course, it exists, and we call it scale in the world of internet, but certainly I am no longer having to put in value into that asset for it to generate rents for me. So is does that qualify as rent-seeking behavior given that my productivity could stop but my income would not from that? That's a really good question, and there's something deep to be uh, sorted there. I can't say in any particular instance, but I can say that there is a point at which you are simply profiting from scale where you have not introduced something new mm -hmm. and that this ends up very quickly in rent-seeking behavior, which is exactly why we have 
laws uh, about monopolies, for mm -hmm. example, the mm -hmm. point at which the monopoly is simply uh, going to profit from all things in the neighborhood um, is not desirable because it doesn't motivate anybody to generate anything new. Yes. So yes, there is something of that nature, but whether or not you're across the threshold that we should identify as rent-seeking is a different question. Well, uh, interestingly, amongst my group of friends, it seems like the dream, at least as we're sort of tentatively defining it, is to achieve rent-seeker status, which is to say to have a quantity of wealth such that you would never need to work again, or to have a, a system of assets that produces for you. So um, I, I definitely want to hear more. I, I see opportunities in my own life to think about this more deeply, and certainly in my friends who have been even more successful. And I have a finance here, yeah. right over here, who I, wants to stop it. I just have two questions. <laughs> is is rent-seeking always value-destructive, or can you have rent-seeking behavior that's good for the world. And so, for instance, if I in one day could create something where I distribute to every person and every person just takes a pill and it cures them of cancer, heart disease, whatever, but it took me one day of work, but I profit off it every day because every day the whole world sends me a penny in exchange for the pill. Am I rent seeking? And if so, is that bad that in one day's work, I cured the world's diseases? So this is a great question. Um, in some sense, what you're asking, given that what we are really talking about uh, is um, externalities, what you've got is a description of a positive externality that arises without the uh, introduction of new value. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is the reason to identify rent seeking is not inherently about negatives. What it is, is a recognition that people are capable of innovating things that are valuable for us, but they are disincentivized from doing so. So yes, we wanna get rid of the harms that arise out of rent-seeking behavior, um, but we also want to incentivize people to be productive in ways that enhance human well-being. And so this, is, this really comes down to a diminishing returns problem, where as you get wealthier, you have to do less and less to generate further wealth. That means that all sorts of people, especially people who have demonstrated the capacity to bring value into the world that made them wealthy, are disincentivized from producing new and valuable things, even as they are sometimes incentivized to produce things that are actually harmful. So what we would really like is to leverage the value of markets to drive people to bring as much value into humanity as they can with as little destruction. That's the ideal. Mm -hmm. And our system is very badly structured from the point of view of doing that, but it could be fixed, not perfectly, but it could be fixed so that in general, rent-seeking behavior was not rewarded and um, productivity was rewarded. So. And, and really question oh, about productivity. So this this is one of the difficulties of um, I grew up on the Internet. Right. So strangely, one of the most productive things that I can do is make a video and then go to a beach. Right. Because that video has a life far beyond the several days that I took to make it. And one of the least productive things I could do would be any sort of one on one continuous labor. And, and so I think correct me if I'm wrong in, in saying that. Sir, it seems like one area where we agree is that we want a system that incentivizes the production of value. And it doesn't necessarily need to be every day. Like if Ben said, if somebody can cure cancer in a day, like, please do that. That can be your contribution to humanity. Uh, such that perhaps it's not just that rent-seeking behavior is bad. It's that any system which uh, places the economy and, and earning of rents and incomes above doing good in the world 
is the problem. Uh, but there are other rent-seeking behaviors which could coincide with with appropriate behavior that we would love to see more of in the economy. Yeah, this is great. So okay. I used to, uh, I had a little lesson that I taught students mm -hmm. in which my point was, you've been told work is good. Mm. Work is not good. It's work is the opposite 100%, of good. Right? 100%. To the, to the extent that you can bring something of value into the world with less work, please do so. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, we're in 100% agreement. If you can produce value while sitting on a beach, great. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. We should all seek uh, exactly such things. Um, and hopefully, you know, you're sitting on a beach time isn't completely idle either. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it's, uh, you know, generative in some way. That's That would be... If all of the work we did didn't feel like work, but was nonetheless productive, that would be a very desirable state of, of affairs. Mm -hmm. I do want to go back to something uh, with reference to your last question, because I think it is really the, the most salient point. It is not necessarily the case that you should seek the rent seeking in your own behavior and stamp it out. Um, and I know this is counterintuitive, but... I, uh, I did a TED Talk some years ago called The Personal Responsibility Vortex. Mm -hmm. And it was about the fact that if you decide that you should live your values, you are very likely to hobble yourself with respect to economic and political power such that your values are actually harmed in the process. Whereas if you accept that there is a certain compromise that the products you buy may not be perfectly green and although you want to see a sustainable world if you shop for only sustainable products you will have much less resource with which to for example send your kids to good schools to persuade your political representatives to do good things so the question really is one of opportunity cost mm -hmm. given the effort you have to deploy what is the way to spend that effort that realizes your values at scale in the most effective way possible. And it probably isn't living your values at home. Mm -hmm. That said, this is not licensed to be perfectly amoral in your personal life. You have to draw a line somewhere. There are things you won't do, even if they would be remunerative. And there are things you will do, even though you would prefer a world in which they didn't pay. Got it. Um, so it's really that kind of question. Did you have to hop in with something? Um, yeah, my only question would be, I would think that most people would describe themselves that way, such that if everyone were evaluating themselves, everyone would say they were a good person. I think in the same way that Hitler would say he was a good person doing good for the world. And so then there's another world where other people get to judge your behavior to decide if you're a rent seeker who's value destructive or if you've compromised, but in the end of the day, you're creating value for the world. Which, like the CEO of Philip Morris, for instance, who donates a ton of money, but, you know, selling cigarettes or something like that. But that also seems dangerous to, to externalize that to a jury that gets to decide whether you're living morally or not. And so I'm curious when you when you allow people not to live by their values, but to compromise in a way that they think is best for themselves in the world, if that's not actually what everyone's already doing, that's leading to the results that we're potentially being critical of. Well, first of all, I think empirically speaking, everybody does not believe that they are doing good for the world. I think you, we this is part of the mythology, and people believe it more than they should. But um, I think if you ask people, you'd get more candor, mm -hmm. especially if you ask them in an environment where they're free to be um, candid without it coming back to haunt them, mm -hmm. um, some anonymous environment. Interesting. But nonetheless, this is again going to be a diminishing returns problem which is to say we must 
live by our values. You know, you, should you live by your values internal to your family? Yes, you should. Should you live by your values with respect to the products you buy? Um, almost certainly not perfectly, right? There's going to be some place, and it may be you're living 80% of your values, but you may, like I, believe that uh, pesticides are extremely dangerous to the environment, and they are radically altering it in a way that is extremely destructive. But the cost of organic shampoo is potentially too high, and the uh, added value to the world may be too low in that case. And to the extent that what you really want to do is challenge um, the use of pesticides, that is much more effectively done at the level of regulation. And it's also the right level to do it. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, the conversation that we are having ultimately um, argues for the reinvention of so something that used to be called government. Yeah. Right? That in effect, government is the manifestation of the values that we agree on being instituted in a fair and equitable way rather than apportioned in some arbitrary way in which the best people pay the highest price. That's really the point about the personal responsibility vortex is that if you hold people responsible for living their values perfectly, then the people who pay the highest price are the people whose values are the most restrictive. And that means that civilization evolves away from those values because the people who are least encumbered uh, have the most power and influence. Interesting. And we just we don't want that world. Yeah, it's. I think it's partially because I'm a philosophy major that my government has always been this Kantian ideal that acts in a way such that you wish everyone you could will that everyone would behave in this way. And so even though people won't all buy organic shampoo and put the pesticides out of business, and <laughs> that's kind of been my model. So this is definitely something for me to think about. Obviously, I've not been perfect in living that model. I would never claim to be. Uh, well, but imagine for a second that. Uh, government got serious about simply internalizing the cost of each product so that it was included in the price. Mm -hmm. If that's all you did, then we would end up with um, cheaper organic the right shampoos. impact. Yeah. yeah, we'd end up with green products. Mm -hmm. We would end up with pesticides that were less destructive and more effective. All of the things would be properly incentivized. Now, I'm not saying that that's an easy job to do or even plausible, but I am saying if that was the only intervention you could make, suddenly the market would start solving all of the problems that people on the right tend to think it already does. Mm -hmm. So at some point, if I'm understanding you correctly, rather than it reflecting, going, you know what, I need to reduce my own personal footprint, it might make more sense to donate to a campaign like Unity 2020 that you're interested in or, or, or to redirect that time, effort, and finances into a collective movement, even if it's a small piece of that collective movement. Precisely. Okay. You identify your values and you say, given the resources I bring to bear, what is the most effective way to reach those values? Mm -hmm. And the effective way is probably not in the supermarket. It's probably something more direct. Got it. Hey, everyone, just wanted to cut in here to say a big thank you to our patrons. This entire conversation with Brett actually is a result of a suggestion from our patrons who wanted us to talk about Unity 2020, which led to us getting in touch with Brett and then to the conversation you're seeing here. So a huge, huge thank you to all of you who have donated. If you would like to see more conversations like this one, more from the podcast, please consider donating to our Patreon using the link below. The more money that we get, the more episodes we can do, and we are very close to hitting our goal of one per week. So whether you're already a patron or considering one or just enjoying the podcast, I wanted to say thank you. And now back to our conversation with Brett.
I'm gonna have to noodle on this. I something something spiritually off to me in that idea that we would outsource it, but I, I definitely recognize the practicality of of that sort of approach. So I want to ask you now, uh, Unity 2020. I, a lot of our listeners and viewers will know what it's about, but give it just a little bit of an introduction. Sure, and I should say I did watch uh, your discussion of it, mm -hmm. um, which I found fascinating and and quite heartening. <laughs> we can come back to that though. So Unity 2020 is a plan that I uh, announced. I place most people would have seen it is on Joe Rogan's podcast to recapture the White House for the American public. And the idea is that there are certain obstacles to recapturing it from the major parties and that we could address those obstacles structurally. So the idea is we would draft two candidates, one from the left and one from the right, under the agreement that they would govern as a team by consensus. The person running at the top of the ticket would be chosen by a coin flip. After four years, they would reverse positions and the president would run in the vice presidential spot. Um, and uh, that's essentially it. Mm -hmm. We are currently in the process of soliciting nominations and we are getting uh, some great people nominated. We will move into a phase where we discuss the merits of various candidates and then we will have people vote on who they would like to see drafted. Awesome. So go ahead. Yeah, I love the idea. Do you worry at all that it's a tight time frame? given that it's August? Uh, is it August already? <laughs> no. Wait a second. Uh, of course I worry that I it's mean, a tight 2024. time frame. <laughs> um, let's, let's put it this way. First of all, yes, we are well aware of the calendar. The calendar cuts both ways, though, right? There are some ways in which the calendar is very much working against us, and there are other ways in which it's working for us, because we are up against an impossibly powerful pair of enemies. And those enemies, given time, will defeat us. If they don't have enough time, they may not. Sure. And so in some sense, yes, it's late, but um, it's not clear that it's too late. And too early was also a distinct possibility. Got it. And so if, if you've watched sort of us discuss 20, Unity 2020, I think if I could boil my takedown, it's from a governance standpoint. I love the systems approach. I mean, I, I think that systems uh, are fantastic, and I, and I really do, I think that's the value of government, is that it takes personal character out of so many things and has a systems of checks and balances, and, and you've sort of incorporated the, that into the structure of Unity 2020. My biggest concern is someone who runs a channel on charisma and views everything through the lens of personal relationships is that there is a degree to which it seems that the candidates are are interchangeable can be flip can be changed with a coin flip and certainly uh barack obama and joe biden were not <laughs> interchangeable with the coin flip had joe biden been the first one on that 2008 ticket i don't think he ever he, he could have won so i'm i'm curious how you're thinking about the two distinct phases which is the campaign where it seems like one set of skills that Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton might possess are fantastic. And the second phase, which is governance, where someone like Andrew Yang really might shine. So first of all, I should say, when I deployed this, I gave a prototype ticket, and mm -hmm. it was uh, Admiral William McRaven, McRaven mm -hmm. and Andrew Yang. And we are in no way wedded to those two, yep. though I do think they make uh, a plausible ticket. But... Um, your point is well taken, but I would, I would add, it is not as if we think that they are interchangeable. We think there is something to the idea that the team would bring in advantages from both parties, and that if it was understood to be a team, in other words, 
yes, somebody would be president and then it would reverse in four years. Mm -hmm. But during that period, they would effectively be co-presidents. Now, in order to do this constitutionally, the president could, of course, ignore their partner and sideline them, yeah. which would, of course, result in them not being reelected and would be a fundamental violation of the spirit of the agreement. We don't believe we would draft candidates who would do that. But, you know, the point is what we are what we have built is a structure that fits within our constitutional framework, but does something that it did not envision. Now, as for the plausibility of certain candidates, you know, I, I did hear your discussion and you know, first of all, I, I really appreciated the way you went through the discussion. You regarded yourself as somebody we might um, look askance at because you saw yourself as a skeptic, and I see it exactly the mm -hmm. opposite way. If you're not skeptical of this proposal, you haven't understood it yet, <laughs> right? It's, it's ambitious at an extraordinary level, mm -hmm. but it has to be. That's the nature of the problem that we have. We've got two parties who have at a moment when we have arguably never needed leadership more, delivered us two non-viable answers to the question simultaneously, right? They are announcing that they are not interested in leadership and that they are willing to leave us to the wolves. Mm -hmm. In such a circumstance, you have to do something uh, that involves thinking outside the box. And frankly, I think the thing that maybe you didn't reach in your discussion was that the American public is aware of this. They are waking up to the danger that they've been put in, and they are listening to answers that they have been unable to contemplate until now. So that's really the question is the, you know, at some level you could make the argument that Barack Obama will never be elected president because at the very least his name and his origin story make him a candidate that the American public will not be able to accept. But we know that that argument isn't true. Mm -hmm. And so um, now we, we are in 2020 and people are ready to contemplate things that would not have made sense to them even four years ago. Mm -hmm. So what role does charisma play in this? I think it plays a significant one, but maybe not the one that we expect. Mm -hmm. In other words, we have seen so many things that one would not have predicted and, you know, even in the space of the last six months, we've seen so many things that are just simply astonishing that I'm hesitant to rule anything out on the basis that it doesn't sound like it could happen. Totally. So so uh, one consideration with regard to charisma, and, and certainly my view of the world is narrowly focused on this particular aspect such that it might be worth throwing out. But when I when I think back to the elections of which I was alive, which isn't that many, but even the ones that I vaguely understand, it does seem like there's an element of charisma that interacts with the emerging technology at the time. Such that at least the apocryphal story of JFK is that Nixon was sweating like crazy in that first broadcast interview and JFK is this handsome like guy with a deep voice and takes it from there. Reagan, a movie star. You have these guys in Bush Sr. and Carter who are one-term presidents who are very quickly upset bill clinton in the town hall right they've got this this meeting he approaches this woman connects with her on this level and i believe you know he was not the incumbent president he came in and 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 took it over uh george bush and gore bush edges him out in the electoral college as well and then obama is an incredible orator finally we arrive at trump who seemed to 
I believe he was one of the first presidents in the last, I don't know how many years, who won the election by spending so much less money because he was able to hijack the 24-hours news cycle and get billions of dollars worth of courage. So when I say charisma, it's not just is this a likable person, of which I would say many people would say Donald Trump is not. It's does their brand of attention-grabbing, sloganeering, etc., jive well with the dominant technology of the era. And so one of my concerns, for instance, with Andrew Yang was when his mic cut at the, uh, at the debate, I, he did not make a stink. He allowed that opportunity to go by. And I go, you know what? You might be likable. You might be all of these things, but something in your makeup does not understand the, the importance of this moment from a technological scale perspective. To so You need to slam your fist or do something in order to call attention to yourself. So I'm curious to the degree to which this is something you think about or if you think that, you know, I'm just a guy with a hammer and all I see is nails <laughs> everywhere. Well, um, A, I would again emphasize the uniqueness of this moment makes all sorts of things possible that we don't anticipate. Mm -hmm. I agree with you about um, Yang's failure in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I think actually this is something we have now seen with him several times in a row. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he endorsed Biden and then apparently signed some pledge not yeah. to, to run against him. Um, he expected to speak at the Democratic National Convention and has been snubbed. And so my hope with Andrew is that he is going to wake up to what structure he has partnered with and realize that this has nothing to do with the Democratic Party that he uh, grew up with. This is a parasite that has invaded that party and is going to take advantage of him mm -hmm. and spit him out in the end. Um, but, I, you know, he's nothing if not smart. Yeah. And the pattern is unmistakable. He will get it sooner or later. And I, he also doesn't lack for courage. So my guess is at the point he does recognize what this structure is, he will rebel against it because he's patriotic and... Uh, that's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. But um, I also think this is an argument in favor of something like the governance team structure that Unity 2020 has proposed, because in some sense, it's very difficult for any of us to navigate these things alone. The ability to figure out what one is supposed to do in such a circumstance, it's not simple. Um, and those of us who are succeeding in this unlikely and unique environment, I think very frequently do have partners that are capable of filling in our blind spots for us. Mm -hmm. um, I would also just simply point out though, that, you know, and your, your question anticipates this, but the, you know, the Nixon situation interfacing with television for the first mm -hmm. time in a presidential election in this way, um, well, we are in a new phase. We mm -hmm. are in a moment in which podcasts yeah. are competing. I wholeheartedly agree with this. And so the point is, you know, how likely, how likely is Joe Rogan, right? Mm -hmm. He's very likely in retrospect. Mm -hmm. Going forward, it's hard to imagine that you could predict the degree to which he has earned a large audience and gained their trust and been able to navigate very difficult topics. You know, he's able to be wrong in public and have his, his audience be understanding of it. Uh, in any case, I think in that moment, none of us know what the calculation 
is. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that the deeper explorations that are able to happen, you know, obviously Joe Rogan is one level of this experience, but even the conversation we're having right now is a relatively deep dive into some difficult issues, the outgrowth of which is fundamental questions of how we are to be governed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think people are ready. <laughs> they don't want to do the sitcom version anymore. Mm -hmm. They want to do, you know, a, a, a much deeper exploration that results in government actually serving their interests. Yeah. And so I, I could say, I mean, the ticket, the idea of Unity 2020, of course, I'd like to see the candidates, even personally. Uh, I, I'm into it. I like it from a personal perspective. Uh, and all of this is meant in the vein of constructive, useful, helpful criticism. So what I, what I guess I would just hope, it sounds like your understanding for me, is that in addition to an, uh, being a patriot and agreeing to this, this sort of system, I do think that a personality, at least in one of these candidates, that is capable of being the Joe Rogan to the podcast world or the Donald Trump to the 24-hour news cycle is a necessary component of winning 80 million votes. And uh, I'm not saying that it couldn't be Andrew Yang or that Andrew couldn't adjust, but one of my disappointments in watching his campaign was, as, as we sort of mentioned, these opportunities sort of were there, and he, he was almost too soft-spoken, kind, and... Uh, expected to be passed the the stick and to talk right and that is not how attention works in this world so it seems like somebody needs to understand social media the podcasting world 24-hour news cycle i mean when i looked at donald trump in 2016 i saw a savant at that and it seems like he's mm. he's busy right now uh dealing with coronavirus and his campaign has been awful as far as i'm concerned in terms of persuasion but Oh my goodness, was that somebody who understood sloganeering and name calling and mudslinging and uh, how to control where the eyes were? It was, it was like watching Beethoven play piano <laughs> at that point in 2016. I, I totally agree. Uh, I have said he's a political genius. Mm -hmm. My wife has used this exact language of him being a savant in this regard. And I think the fact is, you have to give him his due. Mm -hmm. Not only is there political genius there, but there was also um, his understanding that his party could be beaten, mm. right? right? He time. demonstrated yeah. that uh, one of the major parties actually was vulnerable. And um, so in any case, I think a recognition of what an, uh, an important discovery that was is due. Mm -hmm. But... To your point, A, I hope and will do my best to make sure that the nomination and vetting process doesn't only seek uh, competent, courageous patriots, but also seeks people that inspire such that uh, they are electable. Um, but, you know, I don't see Andrew Yang as outside of that realm at all. Mm -hmm. I think Andrew Yang has been constrained from the beginning by a sense that the Democratic Party is really a political party representing a large fraction of the American people rather than something pretending to do that job. And as soon as he wakes up to what role it has been playing and how it has been constraining him, I would expect to see a great deal more fire. Yeah. So, and I guess if, if, if he does run, which would be fantastic, uh, the one piece of advice if I could, if he ever watches this is take the gloves off, you know, uh, to get from 1% or 3% polling up to the majority of, of the electoral college taking you is going to require radical shifts in the way which he approaches attention seeking. And I hate to say that that's the case, but you got to get the eyes on you and then you got to get a quick message out. And uh, it's, it's, 
he's he's so thoughtful. I, I think it's it's weirdly we need someone he's sh- he's shown on that Joe Rogan podcast, but mm-hmm. I think struggles with those sound bites. Well, yeah, I think it's because we live in a bifurcated world, right? Mm-hmm. So we do have these podcasts which are long form and let us dive deep, exactly like Brett had said. But we also have a bite-sized mm-hmm. world where people are consuming these small moments where Trump says, win, 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 we're win, gonna, win, win. We're going to make America great again. <laughs> we're going to win. We're going to build a wall. And you don't want me to be president because if I was, you'd be in jail. Mm-hmm. And each of those is like 12 seconds long. Mm-hmm. And some percentage of the population never knew his policy, never watched him for the full debate even, never consumed more than three minutes at a time. Probably the majority of And voters, fell in love yeah. with him. And so I think even if Andrew Yang's incredible at podcasts, if he's going to win the presidency, he also would need to become incredible in 15 second bursts that could be distributed via Twitter. And I don't like that, but I do think that's at least how 2016 was won. Well, I agree and disagree simultaneously. One thing that I strongly believe is that in the case of somebody like Andrew, one, he has to take the gloves off, but two, in order for him to take the gloves off, he needs to know that we have his back. Yeah. Right. He needs to know that he will be defended and not uh, demonized for being direct. The other thing has to do with the question. And again, this goes back to your initial discussion of Unity 2020. I agree that it is important to be able to summarize these things succinctly and that one danger is that this is a plan that appeals more to people who do want to spend hours unpacking it and analyzing it rather than people who uh, want to just viscerally resonate with things. But at some level, I think we have to we have to level with each other and we have to say, look, we've got a difficult problem, which is that the parties using that slogan mechanism have steered us into incredible danger. And we all know it. And we all know the system is rigged against average people and election cycle after election cycle somebody promises us they're going to fix the problem and they never do and so if if the the thing that stood in our way that made it impossible to fix the system so that it worked for people was that it was going to require a bit more analysis than that then somehow we have to get ourselves there which doesn't mean that everybody needs to be in on the analysis Mm -hmm. right they have to be welcome in the analysis but at some level we've you know we've got children running the nation we need to have the adults back and whatever that takes my feeling is we have to figure out how to do it yeah so i guess and and i don't want to stay on this too long i i guess when we when we say we have children running the nation my view is we have children comprising the nation as well and and i think we've gotten the government i mean and you can argue that you know hillary won the uh, popular vote. But I do believe that there's a degree of top-down control of, okay, you know, we're going to get these dynasties of Bushes and Clintons and people who have operated into business. But there's also a ratification process that is occurring from the bottom up. And I think that we do have leaders that broadly match the average consciousness of the society. And so it, there's always this tension, which is what you're talking about, about pushing that consciousness forward from the top down and putting someone like Andrew Yang who can talk comfortably for hours on end and has sophisticated opinions on policy in front of a populace who isn't quite there yet but could be. And so I, I absolutely um, – I'm into and I applaud the the push for that and and the only amendment that it's that I'm making is it, there needs to be, I think – and explain it like I'm five version of of some of this because I do think that the level of 
consciousness of the quote unquote average voter is reflected in in the <laughs> the governors that we that we have in this nation. Well, don't don't leap too quickly. Mm -hmm. I remember the three camera sitcom era yeah. where that was supposed to be the extent of the ability of Americans to pay attention to uh, to something on television. And, you know, back in those days, I used to say, it's not the box, it's the business model. Mm -hmm. It's the business model that has us watching three camera sitcoms. And that turned out to be true. We now know that audiences that were once forced into three camera sitcoms are now watching really elaborate series over many years with um, tremendous depth. Mm -hmm. And so really the point was they were that all along. They just didn't have it as an option. This is Noam and, Chomsky. He always, I, I remember he's talking about, you know, if you say that people don't want public transportation, that they don't vote for it with their dollars, well, that's not an option that's been presented to them. And it reminds me very much of what you're saying now. Yeah, it, it's exactly that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the pod, the unlikely success of multi-hour podcasts that do deep analysis is proof of this. Mm -hmm. It's not to say it's everybody, but it is to say it's a lot of people. And one thing that I must say we did polling on uh, our almost 2,000 volunteers as they came through the door of Unity 2020. And uh, I expected and hoped that they would be evenly divided between would-be Bush, I mean Bush, would-be <laughs> Trump and would-be Biden voters. And they were, with mm -hmm. actually a slight bias towards Trump, would-be Trump voters. So it's drawing more from Trump than, than Biden supporters, which is interesting. But the thing I did not anticipate was that something like 25% of the people who are uh, on board enough with Unity 2020 to be spending their time volunteering are actually people who weren't planning to vote at all. And so we have a large number of people who we don't think of, who I think we may leap to the conclusion that they are so tuned out that they're just unreachable. And, that's and in me. fact, I'm, I'm, I've been a non-voter and it's not because I wouldn't, it's because I've been completely uninspired. Well, you're, that's perfect, then, mm -hmm. because you're obviously somebody who's deeply engaged, at least in how the world functions, mm -hmm. and certainly willing to think about it um, and, you know, to take some risk doing it in public. But you haven't been inspired to vote because you don't get a good choice, mm -hmm. right? It's not on the ballot. But the point is, some fraction of those who don't vote really are disaffected and unreachable, and some large fraction of them are not. Mm -hmm. They're... Um, they are rebelling against a system that is rigged against them. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that Unity 2020 is a plan that seems to be reaching a good number of those people and reactivating them because it does provide some kind of plausible hope, this is exactly what we need in mm -hmm. order to reinvigorate the discussion. Well, even beyond that, what I'll say is, I mean, obviously I hope that it works out, but from a perspective of winning even if you lose, you have inspired me in the sense that I n never was even conceived of in my head that I would a really take the time to vote because I could just I could just help more people by doing anything quite frankly, um, and then secondarily participate perhaps in the future at a larger degree in governance or something. I'm not saying that I will, but the the fact that you are an approachable person that I've seen on the Joe Rogan experience that has done smaller shows like ours, but is crack taking a crack at something visionary and big is uh i do think you win even if you lose because there are people out there like me that are watching that are going you know what like 
you don't have to be a shining Donald Trump star in order to to make these kinds of large impacts. You can be a professor from from a state college. Um, so I, I think that that's amazing, and, and I'm and I'm glad that you're doing it. Well, I, I have to say uh, the best part about it, and not just Unity 2020, mm -hmm. but the whole process that brought me to this, is that it has introduced me to a huge number of extremely decent, interesting, dynamic people that I never would have met otherwise who are watching some, you know, they're effectively watching the same frightening movie that I am, and they are moved to do something about it. And none of us know whether we're going to be able to do something about it. But I will say, even if we're not, the simple fact of finding each other is, um, is a very uh, rewarding emotionally positive experience and mm -hmm. and uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing it. So I I know you've got to go a, just a little bit, but I wanted to ask you. I watched a previous podcast of yours where you uh I guess <laughs> foreshadowed the selection of Kamala Harris and <laughs> and said there's a world, hold on, it's two steps. I'm not crazy where we have President Harris and one step down, <laughs> right? So I'm curious. I know very little about Kamala Harris. Uh, didn't seem that it was important to because, of course, she was out of the race at the time that, that, that there was a nominee. So is this a step in the right direction, the wrong direction, or is it more of the same? You mentioned that she had intersectional background. I'm curious what, what you make of her. Oh, well, I think she is... Uh, I have privately called her the DNC incarnate, mm -hmm. that she is like a living, breathing manifestation of what the Democratic National Committee sees, wants. And so um, watching her nominated is, it is a reflection of just how deep the rot in the party is and how much it's going to force its answer down our throat unless we reject it at the polls. And of course, We've already done that once, but we rejected it in favor of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in any case, the fact that the party wouldn't have learned the lesson of 2016, the fact that it swears up and down that the only important thing is that we beat Donald Trump, and then it gives us absolutely feeble candidates with which to do it, why are we not shouting at the party? Mm -hmm. How dare you do this at a moment when you tell us this is so important? If beating Donald Trump is so important, then they should have put their own interests aside and they should have given us candidates that inspired people, irrespective of whether they match the vision of the DNC. This is just proof positive they don't believe their own rhetoric. Would you have been more heartened by the DNC had Bernie Sanders received the nomination? Oh, that was never going to happen. Okay. That was never going to happen because the, the thing about Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang One and second. Tulsi Gabbard hey, Justin, is that a, they uh, are actually interested in, in meaningful change. And so the point was the DNC exists to prevent meaningful change. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't going to put any of those people on the ticket because especially in light of Joe Biden's obvious decrepitude, the person they put on the ticket in the second position is very likely to end up as president. So the DNC in 2016, it was clear that they feared Sanders more than Trump. And I would say the same thing uh, governs their thinking to this day. Got it. So uh, one more question before we have to wrap, and I, I appreciate so much you coming on. Uh, you've talked about the difference between influencers and leaders and how we uh, live in a society where people that would traditionally be pushed into or choose passive leadership are now internet influencers. 
Uh, I'm curious, one, what you meant, because though I hate the word, I guess if I had to be one of those things, I would be an influencer. <laughs> and I'm curious if you think, uh, or just even personally, what what w- could I do or someone do that would be more leadership focused and perhaps better for society at large that is not getting done by the influencing? Well, it's not so much that the people who are inhabiting this role have changed. I believe we see plenty of people who have leadership in their blood. What's changed is the role of um, the public to those who would have been leaders. By shifting them into the role of influencer, it's very easy to turn them off at the point that they say something tough. And the thing that we need from our leaders is we need for them to be able to tell us things that we need to know rather than things that we want to hear. Mm -hmm. They also play a vital role in being able to disavow low-quality thinking and proposals. So the fact that the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, doesn't really have leaders is tremendously confusing because when people attack, for example, the the nuclear family, a leader could say, actually, that doesn't speak for us. Mm -hmm. That speaks for them. But this movement is strictly about the, uh, the undervaluing of black lives. If a leader could say that, then I could be comfortable signing on and saying, well, I am in favor of black lives being properly valued, and I am also in favor of the nuclear family, and there's no conflict there. But by leaving it up to each person to decide what the movement means, because there's no leader to tell us what it actually stands for, everybody is seeing what they want to see. And, you know, that goes for people who are demonizing as well as those who are lionizing Mm -hmm. and the key to this is simply somebody, an actual person who can speak for the movement. So is that is that a symptom of technology, almost democratizing uh, power to have one's ideas ratified such that uh, there are no necessarily social media leaders because whatever meme or uh, abolish the police, defund the police catches traction, that is the almost this grassroots will of the digital people. Yeah, I think um, we are learning many things about novel hazards Mm -hmm. and the internet has been fantastic it's been a disaster all at the same time and one of the things that it's done is it's taken a lot of roles that existed and reimagined them and it's done so very frequently in ways that make no sense because there are no conservation rules so for example the relationship between a friend online and a friend in the real world is not a straightforward translation because In the real world, if you sought to have a huge number of friends, you would do uh, very poorly by all of them. Mm -hmm. Friendship actually has costs, and so you tend to have a manageable number of friends, which allows you to treat them all well, which allows them to continue uh, participating in the relationship. If you can have an indefinitely large number of friends, friend doesn't mean anything. And so um, what happened the transition from leader to influencer that I've identified is a little bit like the transition from friend to friend, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in some cases, this has been positive. The fact that you and I are having a conversation that is as if face-to-face and that an indefinitely large number of people can listen in on it, um, that is a positive outgrowth. Uh, Now, does it have negative consequences? It may. But the fact that all of these new roles have been 
built arbitrarily is something we need to be wary of because there will be many places where we've done ourselves harm and we don't even realize it. Got it. And so uh, fundamentally, it sounds like one of the, one of those big differences between friend and friend and influencer and leader, as you mentioned, is the ability to deliver conflicting worldviews or um, to displease you uh, and have that relationship maintained. And what we have now is a infinite freedom of choice such that the second that I, and I feel it, I'll, you know, I'll watch something on YouTube that doesn't match my worldview and I will want to turn it off. I do not want to listen to it. And if it's debate, I will skip to the part of the video where my, my side is represented and winning. And it seems that I, what I've tried to do is to sit there and grip my teeth through the things which I don't want to hear as at least some personal step to to not just get locked into this technologically supported confirmation bias where I am 100% certain because I've never even encountered anybody who disagrees with me. A hundred percent. The ability, you know what it really is? It's the ability to have your world a la carte mm -hmm. where you can have only the stuff you want and not the other stuff that would tend to come with it. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that I uh, may appeal to people on my podcast, but there's some position I hold that they don't like. Well, that's already describing a niche for somebody to set up a parallel podcast that believes the things that they like and doesn't mm -hmm. share my opinion on the one thing they dislike. So that, you know, the, the huge audience, the indefinitely large number of channels and the ability of people to switch from one to the other to find exactly that thing that they find pleasing is resulting in a kind of uh, derangement, I think, of a sort we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And your instinct is the right one, which is um, when somebody that I respect says something that I'm sure is wrong, the important thing is to say, well, all right, how did somebody that I respect, who I agree with across so many different issues, arrive at a different conclusion than mine? Because one possibility is that they got there because I don't have it right, mm -hmm. right? And I want to investigate that as quickly as possible, rather than flip the the you know the channel, as it were, to something that flatters my uh, my preconceptions. Yeah, and I'll, I'll even go one further. It has been I found it valuable in my life to even include people who I don't respect. And in fact, those have been people sometimes who have taught me so much. For instance, uh, Justin Bieber. You know, I grew up in a time where liking Justin Bieber was silly. Uh, but I've learned so much about uh, influence from him. PewDiePie, who at the time of my understanding of him was just a guy who screamed at the camera and played video games. I've learned more about YouTube and, and building an audience from watching PewDiePie videos, who I now enjoy, than if I had simply constrained it to the people who I respected. Because I realized that... This, this idea of who I respect, at least personally, was so thin. It was based on such uh, thin slice opinions of people. And even someone like an Alex Jones or something, you know, sitting down and watching him, you can, I have learned, I've learned about life. If I, even if I don't share a single one of the contents of his belief, I go, okay, well, so many people listen. So something is happening here. And so uh, that, that has been a, a heuristic that has served me well, I would say. Well, that's interesting. So do you come to respect them after you give them a chance or do you value them in spite of the fact that you continue not to respect them? You know, I, I think respect is one of those interesting words that has dual meanings. Uh, one, you know, do you admire this person? And so I could say, no, I don't necessarily admire them. I don't, I don't aspire to be like them. But can I find something in them that is learnable from and also I, perhaps more importantly, humanity in them? Uh, I, I actually think that that is, 
in terms of this political problem that we're having, perhaps the most important piece is the belief that with enough time and effort, you can find humanity in even the most abhorrent of beliefs. Uh, perhaps I've not encountered enough psychopaths, but it's 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 proven uh, it's it's been almost every time uh, that I that I commit myself to it, I'm I'm capable of it. Well, it's funny. Uh, as you were saying this, I was going to admonish <laughs> you that the problem is you're right until you get to the category of of psychopaths mm -hmm. or sociopaths. And this is really important because what it means is that nine times out of 10, if you just simply say, I bet that person has some humanity to them mm -hmm. and I'll bet if I give them a chance, I can find it, you'll be right. But you're leaving yourself, if you assume that it has to be true, then you're leaving yourself open to somebody who really is, to the extent that they are human, they are human of a very different sort. Mm -hmm and one that you cannot anticipate how they will view things because your mind really doesn't, it's not motivated in the same way. Sure. So yes, we should all give people the benefit of the doubt with respect to their humanity. And in general, it is there, but wow, should you be ready to protect yourself when you find the occasional person who is of a very uh, differently motivated type. Absolutely. And so, uh, and so the last thing, because I've said this now three times, last thing, <laughs> one thing, I've, I've absolutely had a fantastic time talking to you. And one thing that I'm going to try to do on our podcast that I would love to see you do as well is, my gosh, if, if we could find uh, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter and get them to sit down in an hour and a half conversation with you and talk, I would love to see that. Uh, I don't know that it can happen, because, but it, unfortunately, it seems that it's so easy to get two people who agree with one another. I've seen interviews with the founders of Black Lives Matter, but they're always with someone who agrees with their approach and that they say that they're trained in Marxist ideology and that that goes through without a question. And what I am trying to create on our podcast, we've had a handful of disagreements, but largely are in uh, agreement, is, is a space where people with wildly differing beliefs can sit down <laughs> and have a conversation. Now, I am dead set against this movement based on the fact that it's advocating for things that I believe will lead the nation into a terrible disaster. But it doesn't mean that, I mean, as we've started, obviously the idea that black lives are undervalued in the US is true, has been true since the inception and yeah. demands that it, uh, it's a problem that demands it be addressed. So there's a lot of basis to have that conversation. It is hard to arrange. I did see it once. Hmm. Um, there's a very good podcast by my friend John Wood Jr who had Bob Woodson and Duke Newsom on together. And they had a very interesting, quite confrontational discussion about the nature of Black Lives Matter. And I would recommend people look it up. It's probably on uh, uh, braverangels.org. Cool. I'll check that out. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely interested. I'll wrap there. Ben, anything that you wanted to say before we rock? No. Brett, thank you so much for for coming on with us. It's been uh, it's been a treat. You are you're someone that I've been watching at this point for two or three years, and I've I appreciated you on Joe Rogan. I appreciated the con the, you brokering that discussion between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, which was exactly the type of conversation about disagreements that I would like to see. Uh, and I hope you keep doing it. And good luck with Unity Twenty Twenty. Great. This has been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. I would just ask people, come find us at articlesofunity.org. You can find our other uh, outgrowths from there. You can join us on one of our campfires, which are live discussions that we hold with interesting people. And you can find Heather and me on the Dark Horse podcast. Is there any uh, petition or thing that you would like people to sign regarding Unity 2020 at this point? Well, I think the most important thing is that they come to the website, maybe sign up for our Twitter handle, 
Uh, follow Articles of Unity uh, at Articles of Unity on Twitter. And then join us for our events. Feed questions to us that we can ask our guests. Uh, just participate because really that's the core of this thing. At this point, it is absolutely grassroots. If you have spare time, you can join our army of marvelously patriotic volunteers. And I'm telling you, it is the most amazing group of people. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's worth it all on its own. Mm -hmm. Check out the Dark Horse podcast, guys. I'm a big watcher and you'll, you'll see where I crib a lot of my ideas from. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, Brett, thank you so much for coming on. Cool. Thanks for having me. Take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.